the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Scott Richardson Reed, author of the popular blog, The Kayaks Herbarium where he writes about Scottish folk magic, folklore, and herbalism. I've followed the Kayak Herbarium, and that's spelled C-A-I-L-L-E-A-C-H-S-H-E-R-B-A-R-I-U-M.com. Kayak's Herbarium. So I've followed this blog for a few years now, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the depth of research and the frank discourse that Scott brings to topics like cultural and spiritual appropriation, uh, reclaiming or reimagining ancestral practices, and animism in Scottish myth. So I'm delighted to share with you a long-awaited conversation, or long-awaited by me anyway, with Scott Richardson Reed. This is the conversation which I learned that I have an accent. So Scott, uh, thanks for being on the show. Super excited to connect with you finally in person. Uh, let's open with the standard question, what identities do you lead with? Do you know, um, the, the question of identity is difficult, isn't it? Um, because we come from identity at so many different angles and so many different perspectives. It's kind of hard to know who you are from day to day. Because right now I'm just a very happy person speaking to you, Carmen, on, on your podcast. Um, but in terms of identity, um, we could maybe go through kind of ancestry, and I'm sure there's an interesting kind of way of looking at identity through that. Or we could go through what I do for a living, or we could approach it from what I do uh, in my spare time. <laughs> um, uh, am I a devil? Am I a saint? Am I a monster? I don't know. We're kind of a little bit of all of these things, I think, in terms of identity. But um, I guess you would probably say, uh, on the surface, I'm probably somebody who is half Scottish and half English, hence the accent that you can kind of maybe hear. Um, and uh, I live in uh, a queer relationship with my other half, so that's another identity that I have. Um, I am also a, a huge, huge proponent of uh, human rights for people who might come from minority and disadvantaged backgrounds as well, um, and a human rights activist, I should say, so I do a lot of that work. Um, but I'm also a writer, and I'm also a poet, and I'm also a photographer, and I'm also someone that loves the outdoors. So I guess depending on where you're at is kind of depending where your identity sits. Um, but if you want, I can reel off my genealogy. We could be here for the whole hour, and then it's done. <laughs> <laughs> what if we just went back like two or three generations? I am curious about the genealogy. Yeah, okay. So... Um, my mother is uh, alone and a McDonald. Um, my dad is a Reed and therefore uh, English. We don't want to go down that route. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, beyond my mom and my, and my gran, uh, Mary Lone, and she was a Mary McDonald. Um, she, uh, her mother was a McCracken. And so the McCracken uh, were uh, from Ireland. Um, and if anyone knows about genealogy and has done genealogy, they will know that when you start to get 
back in time with Catholic families, everybody kind of has the same name repeated over and over and over <laughs> again. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of go way back in the McCracken line. And I have to say we're all scoundrel farmers or bums <laughs> of a certain degree, um, but then became sept of the McNaughton um, clan a long time ago. So uh, that's kind of our lineage if you like on our Scottish side which is more interesting than the English side because I think they were all just also equally bummish if we're being <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah so like uh, the lineage of the, the family uh, for instance I'm the first in my um, family line to ever go to university to ever sit like a master's degree at college um, and to uh, looked to doing a PhD so I kind of broke the mold a little bit in lots of different ways I think um, but in terms of that kind of genealogy that's where it flows into uh, Catholic farming stock um, as we move from Scotland west coast into Ireland as well that's kind of where we came from. Mm, so interesting so how about a bit of the history uh, of your blog with Hayek's Herbarium? Sorry, how about, how about the water? Yeah. Um, sorry, taking the mickey out of your Canadian accent is terrible. Um, <laughs> did, I, did I say a boat? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, a little bit, a little yeah. bit. But I'm also curious, though, about, about the Hayek's Herbarium. I'm going to say it Because... Um, I, I have to be honest with you, having read it all this time, I have had a woman's voice in my head. And yes, so I get what's the deal with your relationship with the kayak? Um, right. Oh, my gosh. We're going to go back years and years and years and years now. Um, and so I'm going to make it a very potted history. Um, where I lived, we were involved, like we lived in the middle of a forest and this is going to sound like one of those like, yeah, it's purely not talking sense, but um, I got involved quite early on with uh, Wiccan mm -hmm. religion um, and I was about 17 when that happened. Um, and it was really, really interesting and there were lots of groups of interesting people, but also, there was an undercurrent of creepiness, if we're being honest, and there was something kind of not quite right about um, the person who ran it. And without going into too much details, he turned out to be quite a deviant, and so ties were broken. But I never really lost that kind of connection and trying to be in touch with community. And for me, community was not just... Uh, people it was also kind of the land that we lived in and this is where it kind of started that journey um, and then I felt that I needed to work out what was what as a young person leaving that kind of situation and uh, worked with a lot of minority cultures and uh, groups that were open to abuse and uh, people with mental health problems and homelessness and drinking problems and like the kind of whole nine yards but always took that kind of ethos that we are in community together and like that's where I've always felt that the kind of true magic sits is that when people get together and share stories and share things that's where we start to kind of see things move forward but also carrying that torch for the um I guess the, the term now is the kind of animist term of the non-human community or the other than human community, that it's not just who we talk to, but it's also where we are and kind of how we feel. Um, so that kind of carried on with me um, all the way through. And I, I guess I was always seeking something that um, 
was more authentic than the shitty experience I had in the, in the kind of Wiccan world, if you like. And that's not to say Wiccan is a problematic thing at all. It just happened to be this incarnation of it, I think, with this group. Um, and I just researched really, really hard, like really, 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 really hard to find mm -hmm. out uh, where we're at. Um, and a lot of it was done through stories of kind of my history and my family stories. And there's, I have to, the disclaimer is there's nothing spooky about my family at all. There's no, there's no like granny was a spay wife kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it kind of... Can you explain what a spay wife is before you carry on? Oh, a spay wife, uh, the word you can spay um, means that you can look at uh, the future of things. Like you're a spay wife, it comes from that kind of you're spaying and some people would... Uh, have a natural talent for it as in kind of the second sight and I guess we can go there later <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and how do you say it in Gaelic oh gosh I think is second sight in Gaelic don't shoot me with my pronunciation but it's that andach hialu means second sight or second hand sight um, yeah so this kind of journey long story short I guess um, I started to see a lot of people who were interested in Scottish folk traditions and folk magic. And I'm going to touch on that kind of tartan washing idea that sometimes people can say something is Scottish when it's not necessarily representative. And it's kind of like a mixture of things. And that idea of some, someone claiming something is traditional when it's not really. And it starts to really annoy me a little bit. So I was like, gosh. Um, there are so many people out there looking for something. And I have, uh, I'm a researcher, I have a huge research background. Um, and I'm just like, well, I'm gonna start writing about it. But um, this was all kind of came, this is, this is the spooky bit, I guess, Carmen, that there is a place in uh, Glen Leon called the Tigna Bodak, which means the house of the old man. And it's in Glen Kalyak, um, which means the, the Glen of the old woman. And you can find it on a map you can pinpoint it on an ordnance survey map. And I went there uh, with my partner, just kind of like, what can I do about this kind of, uh, this feeling that I have? Um, and we went all the way there, and this is the first time I've ever done something kind of pilgrimage-like or kind of like, yeah, I'm gonna go, and the kayak and the, the thing's gonna tell me I'm doing the right thing, and it's all gonna be beautiful, and yeah, I'm gonna be like the magicest wizard ever. Um, no, that's not how it happens at all. I literally got there um, and I, I'm not somebody that has um, second sight by any means. I probably have like a, a millimeter of psychicness. It's kind of like I know when my tea is maybe being made. <laughs> um, and I was so I took the, the divination tools and, and they're called skiddy stones. If you've ever, uh, they're actually not on my blog. It's something that we put out through the Tales of the Taishir um, project. Um, but in simpleness, there are three stones. There's a red one and a white one and a black one. And uh, they have a face. So they have an up face and a down face. Very simply, if you throw them on the floor and they all come up with the up face or however you want to look at them, it's a yes. If they're all down faces, it's a no. And then if there's a combination of two or one, then it's like not likely, maybe a bit more likely. But um, yes. so I went and I was like, yeah, um, I'm here. I kind of want to know, am I doing the right thing? Should I, um, should I be focused on it? It was literally loads of no's and <laughs> you wasted your time. There's no point. Um, but the one thing that 
did was like a huge yes is like just write about it and find your find your own space with it so i was like okay if that's if that's the only yes of this mega trip that we've just taken through, through moors and stuff i'm going to just go with that so um the, that's where the kayak herbarium came from and that's where the writing started from um, wow can you say the name of the stones and that divination system again yeah, um, it's skitty, skitty stones. It's Doric for colourful. Um, I uh, I don't know if you know the Tales of the Taishir um, project, but uh, I've we... I've seen it on your website. Tell us more. Uh, yeah, gosh, so many questions. Ah, um, <laughs> we, there, there was, uh, I had this, I, I do a lot of research, as you'll know, um, and I was finding um, a thread through some of the witchcraft trials from the... 16th and 17th century in Scotland um, about these stones that the, in some of the witchcraft trials they're called slake stones so it's s-l-a-i-k um, which means release um, as like you slake your sail and all of that kind of stuff um, but only in one trial were they called that and and so I was kind of like gosh there's this whole there's this whole way of interacting with the world that are within these trials and um, what story do they tell? So being the researcher that I am, I looked through, um, there's the Scottish Survey of Witchcraft in Edinburgh um, done by the amazing Dr. Julian Gooder and he's fantastic and the amount of work that he's put into this is phenomenal. If you, you can basically search all of the witchcraft trials by date, name, place, devil, not devil, whatever, <laughs> spit of salt, spit, piss, whatever, like you can literally find out what they're for. Um, so I pulled all of the mentions of uh, stones, just stones at this time, and then went through all of the uh, court trials that are written in really, really old. I don't know if you've ever seen them. I will send you a page and you can see what I mean. You may want to put it in your blog. Yeah what it looks like and it's not like writing today so it had to be trans i call it transliterated but transcribed over um and it was a ton of work but it turns out that looking at all of these different incarnations and from different places there was a very familiar pattern of how these stones were used and what they were used for the colors the whole nine yards um so i was like i kind of need to bring this to life because my gallic's shite if we're being honest um <laughs> my storytelling ability is maybe not very good um and i don't think it would have been done justice if it was just a kind of here's an academic paper about some stones mm -hmm. and i'm sure there's people who listen to your blog like me who are massive nerds about this kind of stuff and will like be like oh this is amazing um but I think academia um, is also out of reach for a lot of people. It doesn't really bring it to life. Um, and doing the work that I do with minority cultures and uh, minority communities, I was kind of like, what would bring it to life for people more? So um, I approached a storyteller called Amanda Edmiston, uh, who does the Botanica Fabula storytelling blog, and um, Debbie Armour, who now is in the band Bird Ellen, and together we um they took my research and they turned it into songs and stories and things and brought it all to life so if you're like into that kind of stuff um you can hear the stories and the songs and the tales all kind of woven together that bring to life uh, one particular witchcraft trial in orkney um 
and it's by Jonet. Jonet's an amazing woman. Um, and it was only in her later years that she got accused of Maleficarum and like killing lots of people that had actually been absolute massive bastards to her. <laughs> she got charged with witchcraft, but she got away with it for a really long time. But um, she was kind of accused, I think, twice. And she was like found not guilty. And it was only the third time when she was accused of drowning a man's son out of spite by the beach that she got mm. properly um, finished off. <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. like, so the whole Slakestone story comes from uh, Jonet and others' testimonies and I've brought together the best that I can do um, in terms of kind of reconstruction with that um, and say, okay, this is what this might have looked like and this is my, my how it worked. But there's also a few embellishments with it. So hence we don't call it the Slakestone method because that's the traditional name and we call it the Skiddystone method because it's colourful stones because there's three of them. So mm. um, in the Taishir project, we are very clear that like, this is the best guess that we can kind of do for that. But well, we'll put a link uh, in the show notes and everywhere we can to that project. Cause of course I'm like, oh, so cool. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the, the fabric that came with it sold out really quickly. Um, and people are like, please reprint it. Um, if there is enough interest, I will. <laughs> right, if um, there's a wait list or something, okay. Cause the, well, there's not we'll much, wait for you to capture that. There's not so much a wait list, it's more, um, it's kind of like a limited thing, it was for the project, but the profits from the project for that allowed us to create an organization called the Woven Land Network, which is protecting what we're calling community folk heritage sites in Scotland, um, mm. from caves to springs to wells. And um, mm. so the money from it to pays the, the performers, which is Amanda and, and Debbie, but then the rest of the profit, profits, the rest of the profits go to uh, the fund that helps the Woven Land Network to do what it does. So okay, well, we're going to uh, off air. We're going to figure out a way to capture the information of people who are interested in supporting this, so we can get an, a reprint going. So so we'll <laughs> let people know how listeners who missed out on the first edition can encourage you to put out another one. So I'll, I'll talk about that in, in the outro. Now on your blog, you have a really excellent primer uh, that I have sh shared widely, benefited from myself, read through footnotes uh, and, and recommended to, to folks. Uh, and, it, and it's multi-part. Uh, the title, The Good, the Dead, and the Fairy, Animism and Ancestors in Scottish mm -hmm. Folklore. Can, can you give us just some of the highlights? What were you exploring in that series? Um, do you know that like segues quite nicely actually from the, the, the Scary Stone story because that, when I was researching the Scary Stone story, I was coming across a lot of testimony, for want of a better word, of uh, people let's go back a step. People think witches, demons, devil, working with the devil, demons, blah, blah, goddess, god, all of this kind of, this kind of stuff that um, is not necessarily the way it was. Um, and so some of the testimonies are like that. And I guess we have to realize that they are like that because of lots of different reasons of bias of the people recording it and all of these kinds of things and hands up, you know, also my own bias with reading it as well. We all have a lens. Um, but there was a lot of witchcraft trials that talked about people um, hanging out with dead people, basically. <laughs> um, and I was like, this is really, really interesting because it's not actually, there's no like flying to the Sabbath on a broomstick stuff. It's just like, 
Jeannie bumped into Thomas, who'd been dead for a while, and Thomas said, hey, hey, uh, I, can, uh, I can help you out, actually, if you uh, just promise me that you will be true in that kind of, I'll help you out if you just kind of say, yeah, I'll do these things for you. Um, and I was like, okay, that's weird, Thomas, hi, whatever. Um, but then people like Thomas kept like popping up. There was people from like battles and others. If you look at the blog, there's a whole section of things. Um, I can't reel them off the top of my head, if I'm being honest, because I don't have it in front of me and I can't remember things just off rope. But um, if you go there, you can kind of read all of these different um, incarnations of things. Um, and I was like, so what is this all about? Um, and so it kind of segued off the scary stone stuff because that's what I was looking for. And I was kind of like all of these testimonies. And then we have a huge conflation with um, the dead and the fairy faith or the sheep. Um, and in Scotland, it's S-I-T-H. So it's a bit like um, Star Wars, the Sith or whatever. Um, and I have a funny story. I did a talk recently and that was the title, Battles with the Sith. And I was like, that's like I hope you're not all here to uh, know about the magic of Star Wars because it's a completely different thing. Um, so uh, yeah, there was this whole, okay, what's going on here? Like people are contacting the other world through their ancestry, right? Um, and then if we start to think about all of the kind of fairy lore that we have, there's this whole not so much overlap but this kind of they're in the same space um, and there's a saying in Scotland that you're only ever three feet away from the other which is really nice and very evocative of the fact that there's a connection there that we kind of miss but um so yeah I don't know if I'm going in the right direction but that idea that um people who were accused of witchcraft actually were just contacting ancestral spirits of whatever nature and they were helping them out and they were basically helping people heal people or um, find things or fix stuff. They weren't like, yeah, let's all fly to this church on a broomstick and um, fuck up whatever we want to fuck up. It's like a completely kind of different experience. Um, so that kind of what led to that whole multi because it is quite a vast actually i was reading it the other day and i'm like gosh it is quite long <laughs> well it definitely seems like it's the summary for a book right it's it's there's just such fascinating material and when i uh, the reason why i love it so much is as a fifth generation settler in canada of scottish descent uh, my experience of ancestry is that, yeah, I kind of hop over the last few generations because, um, of course, you know, I'm downstream from, I'm in the bottleneck of trauma, right? Dislocation in Scotland leads to, you know, migration to Canada, but very difficult times here as well. And so here I am in Victoria, the traditional lands of the Lekwungen speaking people. I'm white, I'm dealing with the spirits of place. Who, you know, so my ancestors, when I'm talking to my dad, my great great granny Graham, she's saying, Yeah, I would like a little drambui on this special night. But the spirits of the land are saying, Alcohol is not really cool for us. And so if you could just do that a little bit, you know. And so here I have the experience of this big ash tree 
in my backyard. And uh, over time, I had a few different experiences where that um, a neighbor threatened the uh, continued existence of that tree, and I turned into a crazy person and realized, <laughs> oh my gosh, like my ancestors have actually taken up residence in this tree, and there's no fucking way this guy is going to take it down or take it away. And it was just so it was so visceral and kind of outside myself, but also in my DNA. Uh, and so when I read your article, I was like, well, wait a second now, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? Does this mean my ancestors have like followed me <laughs> to Canada? Am I appropriating? Am I imagining? Do they oh, love, is my ancestor actually the ash tree, you know, and the oversoul of the ash tree is calling to the people to, sort of anthropomorphize to talk to me. Like, I'm just so curious what your thoughts are for folks who are not on the land this, where their ancestors lived. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because lots of people say seven generations in and then you're there. Um, but what, what do you mean? Like, uh, I, I have to preface this with, I don't necessarily agree, but they say if you've lived in a place for seven generations, that's when you oh. can call it home. Um, okay. we, have, we have that a lot in where I live as well. I'll be always be an outsider and my kids would be outsiders and their kids and kids would probably just be locals after three generations of stuff. Um, but I don't prescribe to that. And something off topic and off piste a little bit, but something worth thinking about. Um, and uh, yeah, I have, this is not a fully formed thought yet, Carmen, but it's something that if we look at the, the tales that we have of um, when humans were first created, they were made of an ash tree and a rowan tree, a karun tree, karun in, in Gaelic. I couldn't tell you what the Gaelic for ash tree was, apologies. <laughs> um, and so we came from the woods created by stuff. We don't know what the, the, the kind of Pictish or Celtic kind of thinking around this is, but there's a lot of conflation between the land where we live um, in fairy lore and uh, the dead that live there. But one of the things I think that I haven't paid very much attention to, which I'm starting to think through is, and it might seem like a weird segue, are the plants where we live our ancestors? <laughs> because if we have tales that we come from places, like trees and things and we have the world tree the beel the, the pillar tree the center of things that could have been an ash or a yew tree um are we up are we compartmentalizing who we are by not actually embracing the fact that we came from plants and if you look at the science i guess you could argue that we are all part plant down the line of if you believe in evolution and all the rest of it um, uh -huh. So that for me, there's that kind of, well, ancestry is maybe in terms of, in, in that kind of complex is more complicated than maybe we're being too compartmentalized about like, this is the dead and this is a nature spirit. And actually, if we look at the stories of fairy faith and the stories of the she and uh, the good folk, uh, it all, interplays and overlaps it's never like a single story it's never like a single thread um but that's something i'm exploring and people might be like yeah it's way off base i don't know um but it's it's kind of something to think about that maybe in our kind of limited scope of things that we're not we're, we're too like this is this and that is that and that is not that and 
those two things don't mix because that's how we see the world and actually the poetry and the songs of things don't care because <laughs> mm. they sing in harmony with each other and there's not that kind of compartmentalizing or that siloing of like ideas like this is the dead and this is the nature spirit maybe they're one and the same thing um and like the the the, the genus loki or the genus locorum <laughs> the plural of that is maybe that is how some of those began and it's my belief that or my experience to a limited extent that where where i am in scotland that is definitely the case that you know the the tuadudan and we're buried in the she mounds and we have to promise them a, a tithe of things otherwise the, the crops fail and here we have our original animist promise that pact that you can see reflected further in the um, witchcraft literature and trials of the, the 16th and 17th centuries as we move forward it's like just keep your promise and you'll be okay if you don't I'll pull your eyes out and kill your <laughs> but in terms yeah. of your question Carmen I guess with, the, with where you're at and the place where you live that's very it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult thing because humans have made it really difficult i think because we are now aware of appropriation of ideas and identities where experientially you can't it's gonna sound weird you can't experientially appropriate like if i'm feeling something that's my feeling and my thought and if it's pure and I'm in a social vacuum if you like and I'm, I'm not aware of anything going on I will still have that experience no matter where I am but we filter it through a human like am I appropriating this or is this something else or oh, yeah it's really really complicated and and that identity question again is a really crucial one um, and not one that's easily navigated through, I don't think, um, because there are things where you live from traditions that you're not part of, and nor will you be, I guess, at some point, um, unless they invite you in to be part of. And, but then you're having an experience that is different, and then all you have to do is refer back to what your ancestry did. And I know that there's a lot of people that suggest don't come to us for the answer, look to your ancestry and the traditions that you have there, but they are so separate and broken. And if we're being honest, because of colonialism and that Scotland experienced with the Highland clearances and all the rest of it, and all of these things of a melting pot, that people just got thrown around the whole of the planet and they just got disconnected and they took with them what they could. But I, for me, there's kind of like hope in history, I think. Um, and this might come across really naive because I don't know American history very well. But I do know quite a few Appalachians. And I hope I said that right. Um, and there, there is a colonialism that came with that. But within some of the things that they did in Appalachia, there is a blending of like powwow, Native American belief, uh, Irish belief, uh, the red church stuff which is the Christian folk magic stuff all of it kind of came to a thing and they managed to successfully navigate as a community together through all of that what we're finding really troublesome now and I think mm. there's a flag of hope in that um, but I don't think your experience with the ash tree and where you're at should be invalidated because of the fear of appropriation that's your experience and that's something that you felt about that tree 
the fact that you're asking yourself the question, where did that feeling come from? Am I just bonkers? <laughs> Am I borrowing <laughs> from something? The, the fact that you're aware and that you're asking yourself that question is, is, is a good place to be, mm. if that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, can I ask you a bit about saining? Because you wrote an article about oh gosh, saining. Yeah, yeah and, and I was quite surprised afterwards to uh, read that then you needed to write a response almost because of the, a bit of the blowback from it. Um, but it seems relevant also to, uh, you know, the, the, the paradox of being um, a settler of Scottish descent and kind of part of the di diaspora. So where I live, um, they, the, the indigenous folks, they, they, through trade and such, there would have been white sage, but that's not really a thing that they would traditionally have done. Um, the, the folks of indigenous to the lands where I live would be, they're water people, salt and, and fresh, and they would use cedar or different branches to brush themselves. That would have been kind of a, a cleansing or purification. Um, and maybe there would have been some smoke of different kinds of plants, but not wanting to appropriate that, I started growing mugwort because I know that, you know, mugwort, thyme, anybody of European ancestry, probably some, one of the warts was there and we could have used that. And so I grow that, I grow wormwood, different things like that. And I have the Carmina Gadelica. I know that juniper um, uh, and cleansing with juniper is like a thing and that the term would have been saning, not smudging or necessarily cleansing, but, and it's kind of a blessing, kind of a cleansing. So this I know. I never really felt affinity for juniper until very recently, just last week actually, I spent um, four days, three nights fasting on the mountain and you know, it was uh, pretty, pretty spare up there at 7,000 feet and, and juniper is what still grows and, and sort of kept me company and I felt more affinity then. And so now I'm like, okay, maybe I'll play around a little bit with, with juniper and, and see what, you know, she, they want to tell me. And I feel that as connection to my Scottish ancestry. But you as a Scottish person, how does it land for you to hear me say, I'm trying all these things um, because I don't, I don't know exactly what rings yeah. through for me. Uh, yeah, no, um, that article was written um, because in Scotland, we have a lot of people who use smudging right which is a native american practice and they are the whitest white people you <laughs> you will ever meet um and i was like hey we need to be thinking about what what we're doing because it was rich because obviously i'm in scotland i write for scotland um and it's just like you know this is a conversation we need to have there are people who i have spoken to um not directly, but online, and discussed this idea of appropriation um, from Native American cultures, who have expressed a real dislike for it, saying the kind of this is our practices. Others have said, actually, I encourage people to do it because it makes money, or I welcome it. So there was all these different things. And I said, well, actually, I'm going to draw a line as a Scottish person. And I'm going to say, do you know what, if you want to think about this, 
don't call it maybe smudging, call it seining. Um, and it comes from a Gaelic word, Sean, Sean, I can't pronounce it properly, but like to bless basically. Um, and when you do uh, a charm or or a, or a ran or whatever you want to call it, you, you would sane with your right thumb and you would just say sane, sane, sane three times. And then that would be bless, 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 if you like. And it would kind of clear, clear the air. Um, so I was like, right, right, okay, let's look at our, let's look at what we do. Here's, here's the things that we do as a, as a culture. We don't only just burn stuff, we also cover ourselves with water and lustration and all of these kind of things. So if you're looking to re-examine your practice as a Scottish person and an Irish person to some extent, this is kind of where it's safe, you know, this is your cultural stuff. Um, but yeah, people went crazy about that. <laughs> um, really. Well, no especially white people they sure don't like it when you take the fun toys away hey that's really, how they see it it's like oh this is really, my adornment yeah um so yeah. now i think juniper is really amazing because it like had a fight <laughs> basically it caused loads of people to get really you know talking about a plant had people get really aggressive um and i'm like well this is i guess the power of this plant is to kind of get you through troublesome times right because here we are talking about this plant um, yeah, that like it just blew up. That whole article just went crazy. Um, but for me, uh, you hearing that, I'm totally okay with that because you are where you you're at. And if I'm like, it's orthodox, you should use these things. It's dogma. It's like, well, it's it's not. Um, Mugwort is one. It's like the idea that every culture around the around the world has this idea of doing something that clears, let's just call it clearing the air for it to be inclusive of everyone's kind of ideas. And how that looks is very dependent on where people live and, and what they do. And obviously juniper uh, in the Highlands was popular because it grew on all of the hills. And if you've ever been to Scotland, you will know <laughs> all of the Munros in Scotland are huge um, and rocky and quite barren. So this is the tree, you know, and as you come down, you get like cedar and others and then mugwort and, uh, wild time, whatever, you know. Um, so I, I kind of welcome people treading carefully through that maze of appropriation and thinking about, okay, it, it, for me, it's really, really sad that people shut doors a lot on things because I can understand it completely um, from a point of view that someone's borrowing from your culture and it's not welcome because you haven't asked for that. Um, there's an interesting kind of parallel in a story without kind of commenting on American culture because I don't feel like I can because I'm not so part of it. Um, but there are, have you ever been to Sky Carmen? I've never been. It's beautiful, it's really, really beautiful. Um, so we have loads more tourists coming over to Scotland because the pound has devalued and it's beautiful and loads of people are visiting. Um, also Outlander happens. So we're having the Outlander effect and everybody wants to um, hold seances at Clavicarns to bring <laughs> fictional characters, but that's a whole different story <laughs> altogether. Um, so in Sky, um, they've started to run tours, like a bus company started to run tours. And this one guy in particular in this bus company is like, this river here is a fairy stream. You put your head in it and it makes you feel better. Um, and the people in Sky are really annoyed about this fact. And I was like, oh, right, why, why is that? And it's because he said, well, it's not true. Like, that was the initial, well, it's not true. It's a made up story. This is not a true story. 
And I was like, okay, I can understand why people saying things that aren't true about where you live is really frustrating. And they said, but the thing is, like, it is true about this one over here. <laughs> they have all of these beautiful tales and stories about this river, this stream, and this, this situation. And I, we were, as Scottish people do, we laugh about these things a lot. And they said, you know what is upsetting is the fact that it's not the fact that they're lying. It's the fact that the people who are part of the culture and part of this place have lots of stories to tell and people aren't approaching them to hear them or having them join in the conversations that are happening around these different places that um, they have a lot to share and a lot of meaning and a lot of kind of history. So I was like, how amazing would it be then if the bus tour company had a night with you telling stories about the place where you live and you can tell them the kind of the real stuff about it. And they said, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, and I think that's, that, you know, that's, it's going the same, it's just awkward, isn't it? You know, it's like somebody making money off something and it's not even about the money, it's about the tales and it's about the, the history and about, you know, what's actually right about this. And it's not that people don't want to share it, it's just that they're being cut out a little bit from, mm -hmm. from kind of joining in those conversations. But I don't, I guess I'm using that as a bit of a metaphor for like, we need to be aware of the communities that we walk in and share stories with and share land with and be open to sharing kind of being told actually white person stop being such an idiot. <laughs> and, not being so... and also, I just want to amplify what you said about, you know, it's also about keeping the promise. So the people of that place have kept a promise to the Shia that we will keep your <clears throat> pardon me we'll keep your story for you and we'll tell your story and we won't forget you and we'll remember you so it actually does matter that it's not this stream it's that stream so yeah. it's like you said I, I can hear the the um how egregious that if you know what an affront that would be when you are in embedded in a story and have deep relationship it's not that you don't want to share it's not that you know, hey, we get it. We live in capitalism. It would be great to bring in, you know, increased economy to this island, you know, and based on something beautiful like the stories. But it starts to become exploitation when there isn't a kind of um, devotion or at least uh, discipline, a discipleship to how much can we actually point to in history um, is true. I think that seems very, very valid. But it's the, yeah, it's the idea of community is like the magic of back to, gosh, I don't know if I mentioned the idea of community and being a sacred idea, that that's where the magic's at. If we join together, uh, we're, we're better. And, you know, we, at the moment, the world's so full of division. And even in such a simple thing as that river is a thing, but it's not, it's a, there's just someone's lack of like, okay, um, how do we how do we how do we just do the thing that we want to do without being wankers about it <laughs> yeah how do we do it in a good way yeah. so this is a, a nice sort of segue to a thought that i had also in within your uh multi-part um essay there you you talk about um dead from the community. So you, you do reference like when we're talking about ancestors and the dead, of course, we're talking about our bloodlines. But also, uh, there's a saying, and I wish I knew who to attribute it to, that, that we're raised by our bloodlines, our milk lines, and our storylines. And so our bloodlines, of course, our family, our milk lines, that that have, 
you know, nourished us, um, that the people who may not have been blood relatives, but who created a container in which we could flourish. And then the storylines, you know, that beyond the remembered names even of uh, the, the stories that shape us. And so in your essay, you talk about um, the dead also include dead from the community. And I was wondering, who, who are you referring to there? Who are these dead from the community? And, and why is uh, the community so important to the dead? Um, I guess because the, the dead are really important to the community would be the way of looking at that. Um, I, I really feel, um, and again, as an academic, maybe, maybe not here, that communities were more of a deal you know and, and in terms of like the non-human community that was more of a deal at one time than we give it credit for you know we leave out milk and honey on rocks with hollows to bring in uh, good dairy herd milking and all the rest of these kind of offerings so there was something going on there that we acknowledge is bigger than just a family um and in terms of kind of like dead for the community, if you look to the, the witchcraft trials particularly, it's not like Jonnet's granny that's popping up. It's like some guy that died in the Battle of Pinky. Like, that she's like, oh, that's wee Nikki, actually. I can him. Um, it's got nothing to do with Jonnet's bloodline, but it's got a lot to do with the community that, that, that she was in. And it's these that kind of come and promise or teach or, or do others. So that idea that like our ancestry is only through a bloodline, I think is a bit narrow um, because in, I don't know, we could romanticize like the culture of the olden days where everyone was like, yes, we all got on, it was lovely. But if you think about how long it would take to bake a loaf of bread without what we have now, you would only be able to bake bread. You wouldn't be able to do anything else because it takes so much time. So you would need to kind of say like, I'll bake the bread if you gather the eggs and you do all these things. So the idea of maybe a bit more cooperation in smaller communities is not as maybe romantic as, it, as I'm making it sound, but it's a bit outside my pay grade to comment on, oh gosh, uh, structure of uh, uh, 15th century Scottish villages, for instance, I, I just don't know. Um, so the idea that, um, our ancestry is bigger than ourselves, I think is a really, really important one to hold on to. We've also got that kind of crazy idea that I'm thinking that um, our ancestry is also the plants around us in a way. Um, and I think gears into a different way of uh, thinking about ancestry. So again, if we look at the term differently in terms of ancestry, what does it, who built us? Because we're not just a thing that was born, we're also lots of other things. Um, but also I think in terms of if you're adopted or in the queer community, you have your own chosen family as well. And it's not, imagine if, imagine if we say Carver's like, sorry, you can't pay homage to that person because you know, you're not actually even related to them. Um, but you're like, but actually this person brought me up. Um, it's my adopted yeah. mom and I love them. Or mm -hmm. like, this is my queer chosen family and I love them. What are you saying, you know? Um, so for me, ancestry from the community is that kind of ancestry from the community. And like, even if we start to uh, look at the idea of um, the first person to die in a graveyard, um, do you know this kind of folk folklore? Mm -hmm. uh, I'll keep it brief. Um, so the idea is the first thing to die in a graveyard would become the guardian of that graveyard so um, 
the first person to, to die basically and be buried would be the, the guardian spirit of that place. So here we have a kind of very clear link between dead and land spirit taking up residence and they become the kind of the psychopomp for that space. Mm -hmm. um, so eventually it got to the point where um, they were like, hang on, we can't have like humans wandering around <laughs> being guardians of places, we'll bury a dog first. Um, and that's where you get the black dog myths from from this kind of guardian hounds of hell type kind of stuff and Mark Norman's written a whole huge book about it if it's something you're interested in black dog myths um, and can probably do it more justice than me skipping over it kind of lightly um, but that idea that that we are linked to the community that we have like we used to bury the dead in barrows and really in Cairns, really near where we lived, we used to bury them under our floor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and the idea is that like, the romanticized version, I guess, then of that kind of ancestry veneration is the people who you loved, who brought you together are underneath your feet and they mm -hmm. are making the crops grow with their mm -hmm. dead bodies. Um, and we're surrounded by these kind of supportive things. And I guess that could be, again, classified as me being a bit romantic about it, but, the idea is that's kind of where this comes from. It stems from that kind of like the roots that we have. And now we're all over the place. It's more difficult. Um, mm -hmm. But also there's that kind of discussion about there's tradition on one hand. And we I, I try very hard to piece together, together tradition. But if I hold it up to the light and it doesn't fit <laughs> our experiences today, because we're not going to go around burying and murdering children, you know, like, and that's <laughs> digging up dead bodies. Well, you can, if you want, I guess some people have been known um, to, to, to work specific kind of traditional charms. It's kind of like, well, you know, that's not, and, and, and our ancestors were nothing but adaptive. Um, mm. And I don't think if our ancestors had penicillin and antibiotics back then, they would be like, no, no, sorry, it's not traditional. I'm not going to do that. They'd be like, what? Yeah, just give me the fucking yeah. drugs. I want to totally. get well. And like the technologies that they had were looking to that kind of, you know, this is how they kept safe. We know more, but we've gone so far into the kind of disconnect from it that we need to bring back and I use the term spiritually spiritual technologies in a way because we've lost that connection we've been too materialistic that kind of um I'm a very much a believer in a kind of it's going to sound really hippy dippy stuff but we have a brain we have a heart and we have our gut um and I very much believe that when we're in tune with our gut and our brain we kind of hit that space of intuition that's when we kind of know when you're like in tune with that gut reaction and you're thinking and that's where your heart space sits in that kind of intuition stuff and we've lost and that, that is connection I, I think that's also so much of the fun part of developing you know a modern self-directed spirituality that is as free as possible from dogma, but but amplified by the potency of of the collective. So this is why we share on blogs and things like that to try to parse out like, okay, I have a bit of a a a, a design brief here. How do I enact my my spirituality where I am, given the location I'm in, and and thinking of the the dead below your feet or the first in the graveyard. <clears throat> it reminded me of, uh, you know, researching Yule traditions in the last few years and recognizing that there's one night of the 12 nights of Yule tide where one might 
recognize and honor the guardian of the land that you live on as the first man, they would say, who cleared the land. <clears throat> so here I am again. <laughs> that feels problematic as a white person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> under colonialism and uh, the genocide of indigenous nations. So that's not really what I want to do where I am, but there is a night where I like to honor the spirits of the place as well as the um, try to make well by making offerings, by making um, naming, for instance, naming whatever names I know of the, or, or even just hearkening to the original colonialists that came and the strife that they caused and how can we make those sort of restless relationships a little more peaceful now so that we can all today keep moving forward. And that's part of the promise of me, you know, how do I honor ancestors that weren't very honorable? Well, I have to figure that out and I have to be in relationship. And um, I so I, I, I like that idea that, you know, we need to figure out how to muddle through now and some of those traditions are not going to be appropriate, but the spirit of them speaks to the promise that we made, that we recognize that there are others in the, in the more than human realm that are giving us life, that are still, you know, as Carolyn Casey says, cooperators are standing by. They're like still there waiting and, and would love to be working out these sort of large scale cooperation dilemmas that we have in the modern age, um, grappling with an animist spirituality. Yeah, I think for me, again, this is why it always comes back to community because we're all well and good. Um, and it's that kind of idea of like, okay, how I am in my house. <laughs> my, it's like, I, there's a kind of permission to flex there, I think, because it's behind, it's going to sound weird, it's behind closed doors, it's not impacting on things. You're not appropriating things if you're trying stuff out, you're not selling it, you're not making money from it, you're not, for me, appropriation is that I took this thing and I did this thing and now you're all going to do this thing and you're going to pay me money to do this thing with you, that's for me full on appropriation, but we can't be scared to try out stuff, but if we look, and, but we do it in the right way because Scottish folk tradition and folk magic is all about community. It's all about holding up the honor in community, but it's also doing things in the right order of things as well. That, you know, if you're wanting to look at the kind of rules behind it, it's literally like you will do things in the right order. You'll make sure that things are working for you it's kind of like um i'm working for your neighbors so if you want to start i guess in a kind of thinking about how animism works if you don't get on with your neighbors that is not how animism works because that's <laughs> the idea the, the right order is not in place if you are tense with humans how are you going to be with other people um and sometimes you're rightly tense with people and i'm not saying like just be nice to everyone that's not the idea but the idea is to get in the right order of stuff that what you have you hold is yours and, and you can say hi to people. And you know, if you are, um, if you find yourself in America in a place and this is something you're tackling, talk to the people who lived there before you. Reach out and be that person. And if they say like, fuck off, you're appropriating horrible person. It's like, it's not your fault for one, that that's someone's experience, but then it's your responsibility to heal that in right order. So then you're like, well, you know, 
I'm not. What can I do to demonstrate this? And how can we have a conversation? I want to do right by where I'm at with you and the land and where I stand with you. And how do we fix that? Not like, well, you're wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. literally like mm-hmm. animism does not work like that. And if you can't get it right with people, you're not going to get it right anywhere else, I don't think. Um, and it's, totally. that, it's the, the, the idea that it's not, for me, anim- animism isn't like a belief. It's like an experience. It's a thing you do. Um, and I don't, it's hard to, for me to write about the everyday things because if you saw them they would be so mundane and so like nothing it's just like here's a picture of my front door <laughs> and here's me saying thanks see you later house do you know what I mean it's like you yeah can't, yeah you can't you can't put that on an Instagram post like you can't you can't you can't demonstrate what that looks like because it's like an everyday experience and we don't always live in right order of things all the time either but when we find ourselves shifting out of stuff Mm -hmm. we bring ourselves back um, and we acknowledge that okay how i'm acting right now i'm being a bit of fucking ass so i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it back to see kind of like where i'm at with my people and it's also having the people around you who are going to say you know what, Scott, you're being a bit of an ass right now. And you go, totally. oh, okay, yeah, after having a yeah. stroke, like, I'm not, I'm and not. And then you're like, yeah, maybe I am. Yeah, yeah, maybe I am. And sometimes it's not going to be the living people because they might not see or know that you're being an ass. Sometimes it's going to be your dead, right? You, you yeah. say in one of the articles, the way we conceive of the dead today is not the same way as our ancestors. The dead were moving, roving things that could eat, fight, and fuck. And I love that because my husband and I often kind of joke that we're an eat, drink, fight, fuck kind of couple and it's pretty intense. Uh, and so, you know, but, but also I think I come from a long line of that. So my family folklore tells that my great, great granny Graham had the second sight. And so as a young woman, um, she was a seamstress at what family folklore just calls the castle in Inverness, which (laughs) like, I don't, we have no idea. Just, I don't know which, but that she saw ghosts there. And I've wondered as my training um, has become more around uh, trauma recovery and somatic um, therapies, I've wondered whether she was so keen to leave Scotland and come to Canada because her felt sense of the trauma of the place where she lived was just, it was roving and eating and eating at her. Like if she was literally just haunted by loss upon loss upon loss and felt like maybe she could get away from that if she, you know, moved to different land or if she came to Canada. She came from around Inverness and she went to what's, what's called the Badlands or the Coolies of Alberta, Southern Alberta. And it was an extremely difficult, you know, frontier lifestyle at the turn of the last century. It, it wasn't, I mean, I think she made the most of it. Yeah, but yeah, kind of 1905. And she was the first in her family to speak English. She spoke Gaelic um, growing up and they just went somewhere so remote. When I think about the vastness of Alberta versus the sort of village, um, uh, that villages that she and, 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 and her husband, John Graham, that, that they grew up in, it, it's, it's just so different. The isolation and loneliness. Um, anyway, she, she was well known as being like a really, really good, good, good 
loving, soft woman. Um, but that's not really how the generations after that came. And so I sometimes wonder if she thought that she'd just gotten away from some things that were maybe scary or difficult. And then it turned out that it visited upon the next generations because it wasn't as, uh, maybe you can't escape those things. Um, but you've talked about how second sight is not a pleasant experience. It's not a, you know, it's not a hashtag second sight Instagram kind of thing, <laughs> right? Can you talk a little bit about that, about um, yes. how we might, the modern mind romanticizes what yeah, yeah. Um, Yes and no. I will share certain things because there are certain um, parts of second sight that if someone's, it's kind of those things if they're not doing and you know it, you kind of know that they're not telling you the truth. If in this kind of Scottish sense, I'm not going to share, share too much. Um, okay. But the idea of uh, um, second sight, we have loads of people saying like, somewhere down the line, someone sold their soul to the devil and now we all have it in this family line, um, which uh, we know to now be kind of bullshit, really. It's kind of a, a thing. And it is something that goes down family lines and through genetics. It's, it's literally, a, there is the second sight family, <laughs> if you like. Yeah. But um, second sight in the literature, is characterized by uh, faints and collapsing. Uh, if you start to think about kind of like what the first stages of like an epileptic fit might look like, mm. um, like dropping to the floor and not being pleasant. Um, other accounts are um, people looking off to the far distance like they're not there or smiling or, or crying or coming back and kind of telling the story. Um, so in terms of kind of second sight, it was something I'll tell you one thing from the literature that kind of makes how unpleasant second sight was. Um, people with second sight wouldn't walk down the middle of the road because they were scared that they would get run over by ghosts, <laughs> basically mm -hmm. ghost things. Um, and they also would be very quiet because they wouldn't initiate the conversation with people until they spoke to them first because if they spoke to, it's a tithe, a tithe, like a ghost. Um, that's where you get the word tithe shear from. It's like a ghost seer. So someone who sees ghosts, um, then the ghost would not leave them alone um, because they had not acknowledged them first. And so they would become like, oh, I can't remember what the Gallic word, but it basically translates to like ghost haunted. So you'd have people who were constantly harassed all the time by these spirits that they could, could only they could see who would be constantly at them. Um, and also they would see, uh, in, in terms of second sight, it's not about seeing the dead, it's about seeing a type, which is like a different constructor of things i guess we have a tithe and we're alive but you also have one if you're dead and you also have one if you're not born yet it's that kind of i guess we might call it kind like, of like an aura or a soul or like i guess we call it like a, a soul or a double that kind of um idea that um they could see a tithe as someone that was still alive um and they would see how they were going to die um and because we have to think about the context of when people saw these people they would see like a, a winding sheet around their feet and the further up the body it was the means the sooner that they were going to die or they would glow or they would be wet which would show that they would drown or and they would see this and they would see all of the things about the people on the island where they lived and if you think about community all the time they would know 
<laughs> they wouldn't know a lot about the people in the community that were going to die or suffer or um and that's quite a burden <laughs> in my mind and it's kind of like well i don't think that's actually much of a gift because you're constantly <laughs> <laughs> having to be quiet and other kind of act you're kind of the weird one that people come and talk to you about you know i, I want to know if my um my brother's dead or you know what I mean that would be yeah. and then you that would be your lot in life that's all that you that, that you would be known for um but there is also um other activities that people did on like the quarter days or the cross quarter days that would allow them a kind of glimpse into that kind of augury stuff the fria I think it's pronounced but um it sounds like it should be called frith because it's f-r-i-t-h it's a brief brief three three anyway Someone correct me, please. <laughs> um, and that's when you would uh, stand on your doorstep and you would walk around your house with your eyes closed and all of this kind of stuff. And you can read again about that on the blog. And then you would open your eyes and you would look. And then the first thing that you would see would be an omen of what the question you asked for. So it was all lots of the omens that we have are all to do with kind of like nature. If you see a duck or a pig or a horse or that kind of stuff. Um, so in in terms of the second sight in traditionally it's not it's not a cool thing you don't really want it um there are ways that you could get it um and i'm it's like a, a it's basically the cat torture ritual it's mm. horrible you would like put cats on a spit and you would roast them over a barbecue and keep them as alive as long as you could so they would make loads and loads of noise and you would do this over seven days and you weren't allowed to sleep and then on the seventh day, um, the king of the cats would come and say, what can I give you to stop torturing these cats? Um, and you could ask for the second sight that way if you're into that. That's really fucking hardcore. And that's not who I would want to go to for, like, you know, that, that's definitely a, a, a dark art. Yeah, um, and it's literally um, people, all the people that performed this, which you can find it online if you're of the nature, um, would uh, go mad or die, or there would be something really horrible that would happen to them. So it was kind of like, you got what you wanted, but in that terms of that, we're gonna gift this, but then you're gonna, you're gonna not live very long <laughs> um, <laughs> afterwards. Um, so in terms of the second sight, there is that kind of element to it being a, like a hideous thing that people want to get rid of, because do you wanna know really when all your friends are gonna die, when you're gonna die, when your neighbor's gonna die? What happened to little Nikki and the army? Do you want to, do you really want to see these kind of things? So yeah. I think there's a huge difference between what we class as second sight and Andahi Alu, which is second sight in Gaelic, it's bad pronunciation. Um, and what we now view as like uh, ghost watch or whatever that kind of yeah. when people are like, well, I can see dead people. Um, and it's a different, it's a different modality let's just say mm -hmm. like a different thing. Um, but it, it also brings in that you know in the witch hunts uh records that you were looking at people had these helpful dead that were coming and saying hey i'll make you a deal but there's also the restless dead and mm -hmm. they're, they're you know so we're kind of talking about the folklore around that but we are forgetting about the roving and eating and fighting and and yeah. like the restlessness so how how what have you discovered about how one would help the restless dead become peaceful dead do you know i nothing really <laughs> if i'm being honest because the restless because scotland's a huge melting pot as you'll be aware you know we have norman gallic 
Pictish, Irish, oh, Norse, um, Anglo-Saxon, gosh, you name it, a huge melting pot of things. And the, the stories of the roving restless dead come from the stories of the revenants from Norse literature um, and Norse tradition and Scandinavian, where people would sit in, in cairns and barrows, they would still be alive and you would see a glow and someone would be like, ah, oh, that must be where the treasure is. Um, and then they would go and they would get murdered by whatever lived in, in the barrow. But there was also stories of people coming back and like sleeping with their wives um, and they couldn't get them out the, the house. Um, and uh, whole teams of people who were drowned and they would always come back obviously around Yule because that's the time of the, the slough and the, the, the death returning. Um, there's, there's a lot of things you could do to stop it from happening if someone died. Like you could take them to a hole in your house and you would make sure that you'd also again follow the right order of things. If you did something wrong, then that's the likelihood of they will return if you kind of like fuck it up along the way and, or, or like you cry too much or, or these kind of things. Um, so there's lots of things you can do to prevent that. And a lot of the things that you do to prevent the dead returning are very similar to what you would do to prevent fairies from entering your house. So it's kind of like cold iron and brown crosses and um, all of those kind of things. So there's a huge, but to help, like I couldn't tell you what um, people did to help them move on from things. They really um, focused on that ounce of prevention. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like an ounce of prejudice, the pound of cure, I guess. Um, but I'm sure there's amazing, amazing stories about, you know, people dealing with once things have happened, how did we stop that? And I probably, it's going to be lots of killing and murdering things, I can imagine. Um, I, I would love to, if anyone has any, like, ideas or heard stories about how, that, how that's happened, I would love to hear them because it's something mm. I haven't really looked into. Um, so if there was one ritual then that, that you would just want to make sure, it's your ounce of prevention doing the right thing, sometime between Samhain and Yule, let's say, if, there was like, if you're like, no, the one sort of um, ancestral observance or animist observance, the one thing I would definitely not want to forget to do, what, what would that be for you personally? Um, I guess it's like two things. It's one is um, I I always have round crosses on all of my doors. I always just make sure. Is that the cross and like out of Rowan, let's say, and it has the circle of, is that yeah, what you're talking um, about? Traditionally, rather than, okay, this is not good for radio, right? Because I'm demonstrating with my fingers. Rather than <laughs> like a cross up and down, you have yeah. to imagine like it's like an X rather than an up and down cross. Okay. Equal armed X was the traditional pattern um and so they would hang they would wrap them with red thread because rowan tree and red thread keeps the whatever from the it's witches warlocks there's lots Bad of fairies all the things okay so that's the, the the one thing that i would always do but also kind of make sure that you are feeding um and in, again it's about community so it's about celebrating with your friends it's about keeping people close um but also the non other community keeping them close so it's the idea of like just keep up that kind of if you have like a weekly personally i have like a weekly like <laughs> weekly touch in with with things and it's a very simple 
sit chat kind of affair but let's just you have these every day every week kind of things that you do um so yeah in terms of the kind of sowing yule thing just make sure you're in right order make sure that you're kind of celebrating with people and your house is warm and and things aren't coming at you if you know what i mean mm -hmm. but things to bed i think at this time of year is really really important you don't want lingering things because uh things have a habit of picking up on those lingering things be it human or non-human i suppose okay. um, so that would be my one my one thing brow and crosses and that kind of protective stuff um, yeah. and also it's great to do with people and and tell the stories and talk about your ancestry and stuff it's just nice um and i'm of the idea that Samhain and yule like have been very focused on the kind of dead coming back but i think they're present at every single quarter festival it's not just this special time it's just that like this is where we go into the darker points so we get more of the kind of stories told around fires and, and things coming back um, but they're there at Beltane and they're there um, at uh, Nassau they're there everywhere yeah <laughs> it's not like a one-off affair um, so yeah, yeah I, I would say just keep things in right order um, would be my one and my one thing um, if I had to do that but then I guess there's like the whole nuclear armament stuff if you want to go there but. if you want <laughs> Yeah, pull out the, the heavy duty salt and yeah, yeah, the whole <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in your life, you you mentioned just very briefly that you've worked with a lot of um, really marginalized populations. You're very engaged in the world as a human rights activist, as as um, and also with the the more than human world as well, navigating um, yeah a lot of our where we come. Uh, to crossroads and potential conflict. And I would just imagine that that means that you are intimately acquainted with grief and rage. And the last question on the show is always, <laughs> just how are you personally uh, coping with the grief and rage that you might feel at uh, the state of the world? Oh my God, what a question. We could be here for another hour, right? Mm -hmm. um, First off, I want to say that those are totally natural feelings for people to have grief and rage at things. You don't want to be burying them. Um, you want to be talking about them and probably mobilizing with it as well. You use that energy to do something about stuff. Um, so yeah, don't bury it, talk about it um, and use it as, because rage is good. It's not a bad thing, you know, as rage is only bad if you turn it against yourself or other people in a kind of negative sense. But it also gives us the ability to uh, Greta, get a Greta out there, you know, she's feeling so much rage right now. And you should, her UN speech when she's like, how dare, like, wow, like you couldn't even I couldn't even, I can't even. Um, and that's her using her rage for a really good purpose um, and directed in a, in a healthy way. So I say use your grief and your rage to move you forward into something. So if you're feeling like this is just too much, I don't know what to do and I'm really angry about it, just do something small. Start there. Um, reflect back on my, I guess, my rage at people saying this is Scottish tradition and it's not. Um, write about it get it out there it doesn't have to be popular it doesn't have to be groundbreaking it's just get your voice heard um do something small with it and then who knows where that will lead to um and just again kind of 
yeah, talk about it to people and share the experience. Don't deal with it alone. Don't hold it to yourself because it doesn't lead anywhere. Um, pin it to a notice board if you have to. Talk about it. Draw it, like <laughs> whatever. Um, but use because we're all feeling it. I think anyone, anyone anywhere at the moment, be whatever side of whatever you're on, is angry about something. Um, but use it to to move forward the right order of things. Don't let it destroy the right order of things for you wherever you're at. So I guess that's a bit vague because <laughs> like I don't know where you would go with 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 more than that. But if you are feeling awful um, and and terrible, reach out to somebody and talk to somebody about it. Don't keep it to yourself. Um, that's probably the worst thing that you can do. And you'll probably find out when you do reach out to other people, they're feeling similar, and you can share and. And then there's two of you that are maybe pissed off. <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah, together, which is better, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, I really want to thank you for um, putting your research out into the world and, and contributing your voice, but also for animating the stories and, and for taking the time to talk with me and share this um, conversation. Because I, I have found the Kayaks Herbarium be such a powerfully profound and deep repertoire of, um, of tools, uh, stories, mythology, you know, folklore that help me feel connected back to myself, help me feel into my own DNA a little better. It, it really has been very soul soothing for me. So thank you so that's really, much. That's really nice to hear. And thank you for um, chatting. Um, it's been really good. It's been nice. Thank you so much. Okay. So super exciting news, friends. Because of this episode, Scott and his collaborators, Amanda and Debbie, are re-releasing the Tales of the Taishir concept al album. Um, I, I'm so stoked about it. I'm pretty sure I was the first one to purchase. Uh, he said we needed a hundred uh, albums pre-sold in order to to remake it again, and I was I begged him. I was like, please just do it, and and we'll promote it, and I'll let everybody know, and then just tell them it's a pre-order, and you're not going to make it until you get a hundred. And then before I could even edit this episode, um, I think he got a hundred. So uh, I don't know how long the shopping cart's going to be open. It's another limited edition, though. So if you're into it, do it now. Go to Kayaks Herbarium, and remember, there's a dash in there. So it's C-A-I-L-L-E-A-C-H-S dash herbarium, and then go to the shop tab in the navigation. So big thanks to Scott for re-releasing that album for us and for sharing such great stories with us today and wisdom and insight. I Just fantastic. So I highly recommend you follow Kayaks Herbarium on Facebook for updates when new articles come out. Now, my friends, this is the part of the wrap-up when I usually tell you a little bit about Quest and then nudge you to reach out if you're interested in coming with us. But actually, at this point in October of 2019, it, it looks like Quest 2020 is already full, basically. There might be one spot left if I don't get someone's deposit soon. But at this point, basically, if you're interested, looks like you'll be put on a wait list. That said, I mean, hey, anything can happen. Sometimes there's a bit of musical chairs, you know, at the last minute. There's a bit of shuffling. So maybe it's worth reaching out to put your name on the wait list. And I mean, hey, if, if we get six people on a wait list for 2020, 
maybe we'll run a second one then. I, I don't know. I have to ask Ruben. Anyway, let me know and don't shilly shally if you're interested in coming on Quest. It seems like you need to put your hand up at least a year in advance. So just uh, giving you some notice about that. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the rest of uh, the season of the Numinous podcast and uh, look forward to sharing more stories with you next time. Until then, take care. Take care.